Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, part two of our two-part series on the Great Danbury State Fair. It was the oldest, longest-running state fair in U.S. history when it closed in the 1980s, operating 112 years before a ball took its place. In part two, we'll talk about the more modern days of the fair and the sad story of how it came to a close as told by a true insider who was there. My guests are Jack Stetson, one of the last two persons to actually run the Danbury Fair, and Bill Devlin, the noted Danbury historian. Now stay tuned for part two of There Was Never Anything Quite Like the Great Danbury State Fair. In part one of this series, we discuss the early days of the fair, how it started back in 1869 and some of the early challenges it faced. We discussed how Jack Stetson, the grandson of fair icon John W. Leahy, had worked his way up through the Leahy organization and was well positioned for a future role in the fair and at Leahy Fuel. We also said that in the early years, the fair reflected the general makeup of the region, which was agricultural in nature. Well, now in part two, we can tell you that slowly after World War II had ended, Jack says that John Leahy started to lean away from the heavy focus on agriculture as the importance of farming in Connecticut had started to decline. Farms were small. They were harder and harder to make a living at because you had to compete with the, the big, big Western farms that were, you know, supplying the produce and supplying the meat. And modern transportation was making this stuff available to everywhere. They suffered from that, and little by little, they, they petered out. Danbury historian Bill Devlin says that Leahy certainly modernized the fair and brought in rides, attractions, and fun exhibits, but he also held true to the fair's core legacy. Farmers, you know, could all exhibit there right up to the end, so they never, lo- never fully lost that agricultural character. Leahy certainly added more entertainment, and Jack Stetson says that some of the most visible and enduring additions were the many statues. One of the earliest ones I remember was a huge uh, display of Santa Claus and a sleigh with the eight tiny reindeer, which were massive creatures, and uh, candy canes and all this different stuff. Jack says Leahy would buy these at special outlets in New York City and at the annual fair conventions held in Chicago. Another one was the huge Uncle Sam statue, and that plays a prominent and poignant role later on in this story. Gone was the horse racing, replaced by the ever-popular stock car racing. And before stock cars, there were the midget cars. Wealthy people were involved in that. Those cars were very, very expensive, and, and they went all around the country racing. And the stock car racing was homegrown with your friends and neighbors, all pitching in, the stock crew and his drivers and his sponsors. And, you know, all their friends and neighbors came to see how they made out every year, uh, every week. So that became um, a, a special thing. As the fair got bigger and harder to manage, Leahy turned to his assistant manager for help. C. Irving Jarvis had cut his teeth on Danbury's only other amusement park. That was at Lake Kenosha. It had been in existence from 1895 to 1926 when it was destroyed by fire. Irv Jarvis had been a popcorn hawker at that park, 
which was owned by his father-in-law. He knew the nuts and bolts of how to make public amusement venues tick. He handled the microcosm of the details of running the fair and all these events. And um, John had the macro vision, let's do this. And he'd say to Irv, figure out how we can do it. Well, that arrangement had turned out to be a very good working partnership until 1969. Irv Jarvis died suddenly of a heart attack that year. His death came at a critical time for the fair. It was celebrating its 100th anniversary. Plus, the Danbury Airport Commission was trying to take over the fair's largest parking lot for its own needs. Leahy had to make some big decisions about how to manage things at the fair. All of this happened, and all of a sudden, we have a new administration running the fair, which included Fred Fern, uh, who was running the Leahy operation at the time, and myself. Well, Jack Stetson was, by this time, an integral and trusted part of the Leahy operation. He had worked at the fair during the summers, lived there as a groundskeeper, and had watched as his father ran the beer tent during fair week. Beyond that, though, he hadn't really learned the nitty-gritty of the fair's operations. His official title was Superintendent of Rentals. That meant that you had to see Jack if you wanted to be a vendor during fair week. He also ran the carnival lot, including hiring the carnival that would set up the rides. Jack says that when he first began, there was a long list of vendors who had been to the fair and expected to return to this important event each successive year. I had to meet all them, and a lot of them were real characters, and I had to figure out what their personalities were like and and how to deal with them. He says he would get hundreds of applications each year from would-be vendors. Most of the time, he had to send thanks-anyways letters, but there were always a couple of openings to be filled. So there was a constant changeover of a small amount of concession space every year, so I was able to bring in the most interesting of the new concessions that came in. Yet Jack says he didn't realize just how big of a task he had agreed to take on until his very first day on the job in 1969. I put on my red sports jacket and tie that they dressed me up in, and then I would stroll through the gate, and I could actually feel adrenaline pumping, uh, like before if you were going to play a football game or whatever, and, and you were walking into the arena. And what I realized at that point was, I don't know anything about this, and I don't know what I'm doing, and 55,000 people were going to walk through this gate. The attendance numbers also started to explode because a brand new highway had been opened in the 1950s, Interstate 84. I-84 did a couple of things for the Danbury Fairgrounds property and the Danbury Fair itself. If you went and looked at the attendance of the Danbury Fair, it was pretty steady. It grew a little every year, and then I-84 was built, and it ballooned. Jack says I-84 drove attendance growth of between 10% and 30% each year. The fair continued with Jack co-managing operations, but John Leahy was finally starting to show his age. Fred Fern and I were basically running the fair, and, and, and John was there and waved to everybody and spoke on the microphone in front of the grandstand show. And then little by little, he, he had some strokes and couldn't participate anymore. And then in 1975, he passed away. Well, John Leahy had done such a good job building the fair and getting competent people to run it that it continued on after he passed away. While I-84 had been a huge boon to the fair, helping to drive attendance, it was also now a problem. 
The intersection of I-84 and Route 7 became one of the most valuable and coveted pieces of real estate in western Connecticut in the eyes of developers. We continued to run the fair. We continued to improve it. Uh, we continued to add new attractions uh, to the grounds off-season. What I didn't know and didn't realize was that all this was marking time until the trustees of the John W. Leahy estate, of which I was not one, found what they could do with this property. And this is where the story takes a very sad twist. Jack says that behind the scenes, efforts were underway to sell the fair for the best price. Fred Fern, Mrs. Leahy, his grandmother, who he called Aunt Gladys, and the Connecticut National Bank were the trustees. What banks know about risk and about showbiz and about weather-related ventures is nothing. And what they know about is stocks and bonds and the highest and best use of the property. Jack says that offers had come in to the trustees from various entities. The Rooney family who were into horse racing, the Art Rooney family, Sears Roebuck, uh, had made some offers. Well, as we know now, the winning bid came from the Wilmerite Corporation of Rochester, New York. They were a major shopping mall developer. Jack says that James Wilmot was front and center on the proposal. He was a supporter of the National Democratic Party and was friends with Tip O'Neill, the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives. Tip O'Neill uh, had a relationship with Ella Grasso, our first woman and Democratic governor. Ella Grasso knew the politicians in Bethel. And the rest, as they say, is history. Jack says that Wilmot's proposal to buy the land for the Danbury Fair Mall was submitted to Connecticut National Bank through these channels. And Jack says he came to work at Leahy Fuel one day, completely unaware of what had been happening behind the scenes. I was never a part of this, and I got surprised by it uh, one day when uh, Fred said to me, we need to go down to the lawyer's office and sign some papers. Jack wasn't sure what was up. I said, oh. He says, yeah, he says, we're selling the fair. And I was completely blown away. When they got to the lawyer's office, Jack says Wilmot was there with a delegation. They were ready to sign a contract for a two-year option to buy the fairgrounds. I was the secretary, the corporate secretary of the fair. So I was the one that had to sign the papers. And I could have refused, but I was making my living here one way or the other. And, uh, of course, I would have been replaced as secretary at that meeting if I refused. So Jack, at the age of 38, had to finally do the inevitable. So I signed him, and um, the two years went by, and we ran successful fairs, and it came to an end, and, and uh, the property closed in the spring of 1982. So that was the end of it. Well, there's a very ironic aspect to this story that bears telling. After the fair closed, all the items were sold at auction. Jack says it took a solid winter to list and catalog the thousands of items to be sold to the highest bidder. He says he was only indirectly involved with the actual auction process. I'm watching this whole auction thing go on, which was quite interesting. And I became a part of it from the point of view that I could describe a lot of the stuff, where it came from and what it was and that type of thing. So uh, I wasn't on the program, but I was able to assist the auctioneers. Jack says that the five days of that auction were his last formal task for the fair. He says they sold every nut, screw, and window on the grounds. 
And what did he get from the fairgrounds for his own personal collection? You know what I ended up with? There was a building in the uh, racing pits that served as a concession building. I needed a shed in my backyard. And Fred said to me, is there anything at the fair that you would like? And I think, well, I need something practical. So I took this 12 by 22 shed, and I had art venting the building move, remove it over my backyard, and I still have it. You may be familiar with the huge Uncle Sam statue that adorned the fair through many decades. It's 38 feet tall and is said to be the tallest Uncle Sam statue in the world. It, too, was sold at auction. It went to the Magic Forest Amusement Park near Lake George in upstate New York. In 2018, then-Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton, who himself went to the fair as a child, spearheaded a drive to get the statue back to Connecticut. At first, they were going to put it at the Connecticut Welcome Station off Exit 1 of Interstate 84, so travelers entering New England could be greeted by it. Jack says he knew of the plans, but watched from a distance. I wasn't very interested because the Uncle Sam was a reminder to me of the bitterest couple of years in my life with regard to the Danbury Fair. To him, the statue brought back a very painful memory, so it was a good thing that the Welcome to Connecticut rest area would be its new home. I really chafed at the idea that it was going to be sold, basically out from under me, my career. They were going to bring it back to Danbury, and as long as it was out on the end of 84, I didn't much care. Well, the I-84 location fell through, and the city looked to its downtown area instead. The final resting place for Uncle Sam is the parking lot of the Danbury Railway Museum on White Street. That's right in the shadow of the driveway for the Leahy Fuel Headquarters building, where Jack still shows up every day, even though he's retired. I drive to work one morning, and here the thing is, I'm face-to-face with it, where I drive every single morning for the last 50 years. And so I get a daily reminder of this. And Jack says it wasn't long before he got a telephone call from City Hall. And the funny thing is, uh, I didn't contribute to it. I didn't encourage it. But the mayor's office called me one day and wanted to know if I could make a five to seven minute speech. And I said to them, I said, well, five to seven minutes isn't going to cut it because it's a 112 year history with a lot. But I will condense it. Well, despite all the bitterness he still harbors over the decision to sell the fair and the way it was done, he says his immediate dislike of the statue's location has finally ebbed away. Now, when he proudly drives into Leahy Fuel, he looks at that same statue and instead reminisces about the good old days. I kind of chuckle when I see it because it is a reminder of all these statues and figurines and collections of wagons and collections of tools and collections of anything you could collect that the uh, public might be interested in seeing. In closing, one great side note about Jack Stetson. You might have been wondering, as I did, whether the name Stetson meant that he was from the same family as the famous Stetson Hat Company. Well, it turns out he is, which is doubly ironic since Danbury used to be the hatting capital of the world. Back in 1634, 400 years ago, Robert Stetson arrived in Norwell, Massachusetts from England. He had seven sons, one of whom was John B. Stetson, the founder of the Hat Company. Well, Jack's family tree branch was connected to one of the other seven sons, and that was the part that ended up in Maine. 
But his Aunt Gladys, as we said, worked her way down to Danbury, Connecticut in the 1900s, seeking a better life. Well, she found one, leading to Jack Stetson's integral involvement with the great Danbury State Fair. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I very much want to thank my guests for this episode, Jack Stetson, one of the last two persons to run the Great Danbury State Fair, and Bill Devlin, noted Danbury historian. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. (laughs) 